go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. I'm going to invite Josh up to do our scripture reading and Pastor Aaron for the sermon. The word of the Lord from Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to the God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Thanks, Josh. Good morning, church family. How are we? Good? It's good to see you. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet met, really glad to have you with us. We, as a church, have been going through the book of Judges since the beginning of the year with a couple short breaks. Uh, Around Easter time, we took a break to look at the theme of resurrection. And then last month, in, in the month of May, it wasn't so much of a break from the book of Judges as it was kind of a side venture into the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. And so really uh, grateful to get to look at that uh, just amazing Old Testament book as well. Today we pick back up in Judges, and this is kind of the final stretch. We're going to look at, I believe it's four weeks on the life of Samson. He's kind of the finale of the book of Judges from a literary standpoint. Then there are two weeks of, you could call it an epilogue, some different stories that kind of wrap up the book of Judges. Then uh, I'm going to get a little bit of a break in July and August, take three weeks um, off from preaching, and I'm really excited to invite several friends of ours to come and cover the pulpit uh, while I'm taking a bit of a break. Well, two friends of, of ours corporately, and then one uh, good friend of Pastor Shane's who I've not yet met, but uh, a longtime friend of Shane's, and so he'll be coming from Colorado to preach, and we've got a friend from Bothell, and then someone from uh, the way far north of Everett is going to come and preach for us as well. So uh, looking forward to that. We'll keep you guys up to date as far as what's coming up. But for now, we're in the book of Judges chapter 13, looking at the life of Samson. Before we do anything else, let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, to look at not only what has happened, but what that means for us, and ultimately, God, to look at who you are and what you have done to bring life and salvation uh, to a broken world, a hurting world, a world in need of your grace. God, I ask and I pray today that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth from your word. And God, for myself in particular, I just pray that you would help me to only teach that which is truthful, that which is in line with your word that's been revealed to us. I thank you for all these people here today, God. I ask that you would meet us now in this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. All right, let me, let me ask you a question. And uh, this is a little audience participation moment here. I want you to think about the idea of devotion. I want you to think about the idea of being really devoted, really committed to something. You're, you're into it, you study it, you, you invest a significant, significant amount of time or effort or energy or resources to it. So when you think about devotion, maybe it's for yourself, maybe it's for someone you know, or just in general, what kinds of things are people devoted to? A marathon. Okay. Yes, you have to be devoted to run a marathon. Um, 
I remember my dad told me a story of when he was, I think, early 20s. Uh, and he, he and his friend just decided in Alaska, up in, up in the interior, they do this thing called the midnight marathon because the sun never quite goes down. So they start the marathon at midnight and you run it overnight. And my dad uh, didn't train or prepare at all. And he and his friend decided to just run the midnight marathon. And he ran, I think he said he ran about three miles and then he limped the other 23.2 miles. So yeah, but if you're into like fitness or sports or outdoors or cycling, right? You, you have to be devoted. You, you buy gear, you study it, you train, you practice, you prepare. You can spend a lot of time and money on, yeah, athletics and marathons. That's good. What else, what else are people devoted to? Their spouse. Okay, well, that's good. You should, I think you should be devoted to your spouse. I don't know what else I should say about that, but yes, you should be devoted to your spouse. That's good. What else? Kids, being a mother, yeah, parenting, okay. Again, those ones are like really good. Um, I think it's good for parents to remain <laughs> devoted and committed to their kids. Although I would say, uh, whether it's with a spouse or with children, you've probably known somebody or seen somebody where it goes to that place where, I don't know if you could say like it's too far, like too devoted to your kids. Your identity is wrapped up in how well your kids do and you do every single performance and the kids are always dressed perfectly and they always have to behave perfectly because God forbid anyone would ever see them act like kids. Um, you know, so there, there can be that place of like just over devotion. To say, Yeah, what else? Sports teams. Okay, thank you. I, I, 9 a.m. service, that was where they went first. They went straight for the jugular. You, we waited for a little bit. Okay, sports teams, right? Um, you know, people spend a lot of time watching the sports, following the sports, reading blogs, listening to sports radio. Some people even go to the stadiums and they do crazy things like, like paint themselves with war paint and, uh, you know, buy a season ticket, spend a lot of money on it. Uh, have, have you guys ever been to a Seattle Sounders game, the soccer team? Okay, my first time ever going to a Sounders game, somebody offered me a free ticket and I did not realize that it was in the end zone where the lunatic asylum was. And I got there and I, they, they told me like, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to sit down this entire game. And yes, they'll be chanting and jumping up and down and waving flags. I was like, am I going to a Pentecostal worship service? Like what's happening here? Uh, that was insane amount of devotion uh, to a sports team. Yes, thank you, sports. What else? A couple more. TV. Okay, TV, movies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I took my older two daughters to see the new Wonder Woman movie yesterday. And f- fortunately, there was no one in full attire, but there were people wearing like Wonder Woman costumes, little, little girls. So it was appropriate. It's always crazy when you go to like, like The Hobbit or one of those movies, you see like a grown adult man dressed up like Saruman or something. Like that guy is devoted, okay? He is committed. He might need to be committed. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, people devote a lot of time and effort and energy and money and mental resource. The thing that always gets me about movies or TV shows is how people can like remember it after they've watched it. Because I watch a movie and then like six months later, somebody mentioned that movie and I'm like, I've never seen that. My wife's like, yes, we watched it together on date night. I'm like, I have no recollection of that movie. It's, it's, kind, of like, it's kind of a blessing actually. Yeah, what else? One more, anything else? Jesus, okay, yes, Jesus. Yes, thank you. That, who, are you a Sunday school teacher? I can't tell who said that. That's good. Yeah, absolutely, Jesus. That's going to, by the way, spoiler alert, that's going to be like the point of the sermon. So we'll get to that. CrossFit. Would you stop? Who's? <laughs> the first service said that too, and I am starting to be offended here, okay? Um, 
healthy eating or, or a diet or something like that, right? People get very committed to uh, food and, and healthy living and, yeah, CrossFit or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, people get devoted to things, right? And, and I think there is, in most cases, there's kind of this line where we say, all right, they're really devoted, they're really committed, this is a serious thing to them, their life, their money, their time, their energy. And, and then, yeah, sometimes we say, yeah, maybe they've crossed a line, it's too much, they're overly devoted, they're obsessed, whatever. But when you think about Jesus, when you think about faith in general, we have kind of an interesting relationship with devotion, with religious devotion in the United States of America. Uh, this is my opinion, this is, but my sense is that we really struggle in the United States of America currently with the idea of devout religious devotion because in the Christian world, you will be labeled a fundamentalist, which is like the most offensive F word that we could say in America anymore. If you are a fundamentalist, you are bad. Don't be too devoted. Don't be too serious about the Bible. Don't be too serious about your faith because you'll get labeled a fundamentalist. And then the other one we're struggling with in America right now too is within the Islamic world, if you're a very devoted, very devout Muslim, you'll be labeled as a jihadist or, or even a terrorist. Those types of words get thrown around. And so we have this kind of wrestling match in the United States of America currently with, well, how devoted should I be? How serious about my faith should I be? And we're kind of struggling with it a little bit. Where we're going to go today, what we're going to see is there is, in the life of Samson, there is an extremely high call of devotion on him in his life from the time of birth. And so we need to talk about devotion. We need to, we need to talk about religious devotion. For us as Christians, devotion to Jesus Christ. And the big idea that I want to just say right from the outset is, is devotion to God is important. Yes, we need to be devoted to God. But the thing that's even more important than that is we need to remember how devoted to us our God is. Yes, I, I, I want you to live a devoted life, a devoted, faithful, committed life to Jesus. But I am convinced the only way you will actually be able to do that is by focusing on and reflecting on God's devotion to us in Christ Jesus. So with that said, let's jump into the story. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Stop me if you've heard this one. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight. Thank you. Okay, man, it took a long time. What was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for, the, for 40 years. Okay, a couple of things. Number one, the Philistines become really the major enemy for the remainder of the book of Judges. And actually going into the books of, of First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the Philistines are a major enemy. We'll talk a little bit more about them uh, in weeks to come. Actually, that word Philistine is the ancient word, which is why we call that region of the world to this day, Palestine. The, the region of Palestine, it's related to the word Philistine, etymologically as well as um, uh, just historically connected. The other thing that's really interesting, this is probably, I think, maybe the seventh time we've seen this judges cycle come up. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. We're going to go on to verse 2, and you're going to see in a minute that the people of Israel skip an important step. Do you know what that important step is? Crying out to the Lord for help. The people of Israel do not cry out to the Lord for help this time through the Judges cycle. This time, actually, what's going to be the great tragedy of the rest of the book of Judges, chapters 13 and on, the great tragedy is that the people of Israel, the people of God, are more or less okay with their enslavement. 
The Philistines, yeah, they've conquered them. Yeah, they've taken them over. But you know what? They're actually, they have peace and prosperity. They have safety and stability. They have wealth and food and money. The people of Israel have pretty much everything they could want, except they're missing relationship with the God who saved them. That's a great tragedy, is it not? Now, if you're anything like me, you might be tempted when you read this again, the seventh time. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Anybody here like me and just kind of tempted, like, what is wrong with these people? What is, why are they so stubborn? Why are they so foolish? You kind of roll your eyes a little bit and you think, man, what, how could they possibly, or what, what, what are they thinking? But I would just like to invite each and every one of us today to turn that gaze back around on ourselves and say, truthfully, aren't we all guilty of the same? In our Christian walk, how many times have we found ourselves giving place to sin, giving place to complacency, giving place to things in our lives that we really shouldn't give place to? And we could sit here and we could look down upon the people of Israel for their uh, fickle relationship with their God. But friends, I would just submit to you that in many ways, we do the same thing. In many ways, we do the same thing. We give place to sin. We, we, we allow sin kind of a, a, a safe haven in our life. We do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, but, but we maybe just say, well, maybe, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe my sin is not that bad. I remember um, my mom had told a story early on after she'd become a Christian. She had this moment, um, and it stuck with me as a story I remember hearing as a kid. True story, she was out in the garden. My mom loves to, to plant and to garden. She had a vegetable garden, I think, at the time. And it had just been overrun with weeds. She hadn't tended to it for months. It was, it was time to clean it out. And there were just all these, like, huge, massive weeds. And so she went out to the garden, and she started just ripping out handfuls of weeds and just filling up the trash bucket and, and ripping all the weeds out. And she said she stepped back from the road and, and kind of looked at the garden. like, that garden looks pretty darn good. And she started walking back up close to it and realized that there were literally thousands upon thousands of little weeds all over the place that are every bit as dangerous to the plants, every bit as capable of choking out the life and the growth of the plants. And she had kind of this Holy Spirit moment that sometimes in our lives, it's the same sort of thing. Maybe somebody gets saved, becomes a Christian, and some of the quote-unquote big sins, you know, drug addiction, you know, sexual promiscuity, you know, whatever, you know, rooting for the New York Yankees, whatever those big sins are, right? God roots those out of your life. Like, okay, things start to look pretty good, but then you start drilling down a little bit deeper, and there's envy and lust and lack of contentment and jealousy and, and pride and self-sufficiency, Anybody ever experienced that in your life, in your Christian walk? Some of those quote-unquote big things get taken care of, and then God says, no, there's a lot more depth here. I belabor this point because it's important. This this judges cycle keeps coming up over and over again. I I just want to simply say, when it comes to our sin, sin is ruthless. And so we as Christians need to be ruthless with our sin. Sin is ruthless. Sin, if you give an inch, it's going to take two miles. If you try to allow it to live safely in the, the home, the proverbial home of your life, it's not going to just stay put in the corner. It's like a, like a, like a rabid dog that's going to want to take over the whole house. When we think about sin, there's two ways to think about sin. There's the capital S sin and then lowercase s sins. I think the analogy of a disease and symptoms is perhaps the most helpful. If someone is coughing a bunch, you'd say, okay, they have a cough, but you're going to say, what's the underlying issue that's going on there? Maybe they have tuberculosis. 
And they're coughing. And yeah, that, that, that's, that's bad, but they're coughing. Why? Because they have this disease running through their body. If you were coughing a bunch and you had tuberculosis and all I ever did was give you cough drops, then that's a bad, that'd be a bad doctor, right? I would be a bad doctor. Can we just say that? But with, but with Jesus, here's the deal. The Bible talks about us having this sin nature. And so many of the individual sins that we commit Lowercase s sins, these are the symptoms of that underlying sin nature. Now, friend, if you are a Christian, the good news is that the blood of Jesus has brought us into a state of full remission. The the cancer that's been ravaging us has been dealt with with the blood of Jesus. The, the, The medicine has been given to us. Praise God for that, right? The capital S sin disease is dealt with. But how many of you also know that the rest of our lives as a Christian is a process of walking out our healing process? And it's a process that is only complete in eternity. Now, there are things that we can do as Christians to either participate with the great physician or to slow the process and the growth of healing that God wants to do in our souls. In in the book of Romans chapter 8, it it, it says, if you you, uh, walk or live, I should say, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a warning and an instruction that's given to Christians. It's saying if you, if you try to just live according to the old way of living before Christ's blood entered into your life, you're going you're gonna to die. It's not going to go well for you. But if you, by the power of the Spirit, and always obviously by grace, you seek to put those things to death, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body. Some of the older translations of the Bible say mortify the sins. It's an old-fashioned word. We need to mortify our flesh, mortify the sins of the flesh. The analogy would be, again, using the medical analogy, let's say someone had lung cancer, and they got the treatment, they got chemo, maybe there was a surgery, they're in full remission, everything is going in the right direction, this is great, and they go and they see their doctor, and then they walk out into the parking lot and light up, start smoking cigarettes. What would you say to them? Hey, you're not helping things. This is not walking in step with your physician. So similarly for us as Christians, we need to take seriously the fact that sin still wants to have its way with us. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. And God has plans for you. God has a mission for you. God has things he wants to accomplish in and through your life. And when we don't take sin seriously, we, like the Israelites, can just flounder for a while. We can waste time. We can waste God-given opportunities that he's given to us. I like the way that Charles Spurgeon says it. One of my favorite preachers, I quote him all the time. He says, what? Do do saints really want warning against such sins as these? Do Do Christians really need to be warned like this? Yes, they do. The highest saints may sin the lowest sins unless kept by divine grace. You old experienced Christians, boast not in your experience. You may trip yet unless you cry, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. You whose love is fervent, whose faith is constant, whose hopes are bright, don't say, I shall never sin, but rather cry out, Lord, lead me not into temptation. And when there, leave me not there. For unless thou hold me fast, I feel I must. I shall decline and prove an apostate after all. There is enough 
tinder in the heart of the best men in the world to light a fire that shall burn to the lowest hell unless God should quench the sparks as they fall. Wow. This guy's got a, guy's got a way with words, does he not? Spurgeon kid, he's going to make it, I swear. He's got a bright future. The point being, we can never be prideful when it comes to our ongoing battle as Christians with remaining sin. We need to be ruthless with it. Take it seriously, friends. Take it seriously. All right, now into the main part of the story here. Verse two, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. Not your Noah, my Noah. No, that's bad. I can't. That's terrible. I apologize. Yeah, that's a dad joke and a pastor joke jar, like $2. Okay. His wife was barren and had no children. You guys remember, that's a, that's a big deal. Your wife being barren and having no children uh, is a very tragic place to be in a culture that highly values and emphasizes the carrying on of the family line. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is amazing, friends. I mean, this, this type of birth announcement, this divine birth announcement, that doesn't just happen every day. We saw it with Abram and Sarah. We see it here with the mother of Samson. We see it with Jesus himself. But this is a big deal. It's just a few times that this happens. Therefore, the angel says, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, what is going on here? Nazarite has nothing to do with the city of Nazareth. You've probably heard that. Nothing to do with that. Just happens to sound similar. What the word a Nazarite means, the, the, the Hebrew word is nazir, which means wholly devoted or set apart. And in the book of Numbers chapter 6, when God is giving the law to the people of Israel, he says, if anyone wants to be a Nazarite, if anyone wants to be highly devoted, here's what they can do. There's three things they can do. Number one, no wine, no alcohol. In fact, no grapes, period. Not only not drink wine, but don't even eat grapes. Don't even touch any product of the grape plant. Number two, they cannot touch any dead thing or touch any unclean thing. And number three, they can never cut their hair or their beard for as long as this vow is in effect. So be shaggy. Look like you're in the Grateful Dead. That's, that's what the vow is. And it's to symbolize. Now here, here's the point of the vow. Aren't all of God's people supposed to be wholly devoted to God? Aren't all of God's people supposed to avoid sins like drunkenness or addiction to wine? Aren't all of God's people supposed to, you know, keep themselves away from spiritually unclean things? So the point of this Nazarite vow is not that they would be more holy or be more special than anyone else, but I almost like to think of it as an object lesson to show in, in, in loud fashion, in dramatic fashion, this is what it means to live as a follower of God who is set apart and distinct from the world around us. You know, we think about this, um, Christians are called set-apart people, are we not? 
Christians are called to be set apart. Christians are called to live distinct lives. And particularly in the New Testament, but even in the Old, we see that what God cares about is not the external appearance. Even when he gives a vow like this of a Nazarite vow, what God's not getting after, he doesn't say long hair is more holy than short hair. What God is saying is, I care about the condition of your heart. That you, dear Christian, are meant to be someone who just lives with the reality that we are set apart, different, and distinct from the world around us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, there's this, there's this verse. It says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. There's our word, set apart. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, God's focus on the external is Whenever God does that, it is always meant to point us back to the deeper reality of the internal. So here we have this analogy of like a dish, a bowl. Let's say you were gonna, let's say you were gonna serve, you know, lemonade at a barbecue and your friends coming over and you look at this pitcher and it, on the outside, it's just beautiful. I mean, it looks like something you could, you know, put up on Pinterest or some food blog or something like that. It's just this beautiful pitcher and then you walk over to it and you look inside and there's raw sewage on the inside that still hasn't been washed or cleaned up. What would you say? Hey, somebody needs to deal with this, right? This is not very useful to the master of the house. In fact, Jesus made that exact accusation against the Pharisees. He says, you guys wash the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside it's full of all sorts of wickedness. Friends, God cares deeply that we are set apart people in our hearts before the Lord. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have to dress a particular way. You don't have to take a Nazarite vow and never cut your hair, shave your beard. You don't have those external things. That's not what is binding on a Christian, but you do have to deal with the fact that you are different. You are called to be distinct and different from the rest of the world. If literally the whole world and if literally the whole culture around you says something does something, believes something, participates in something that is contrary to what God has clearly revealed in his word, then you need to go with God in his word. Even at the expense of societal acceptability. Okay? I mean, think about the, the time and the period that these Israelites were living in. Everybody said that, you know, child sacrifice was no big deal or whatever. To be a follower of God, man, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to participate. That's a dramatic example, but we, if we spent some time, I'm sure we could think of dozens of examples in our culture where widespread, this is okay, or this is what's practiced, or this is what is done. But we as Christians are called to be set apart people. Amen? Can you hear that? All right. Continuing on. Verse six. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I like that verse. If you're underlying, just very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he did say to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. That's for her, by the way. The mother is, is called to consecrate herself as well. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. 
Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. There's a little bit of a disagreement between different commentators or or pastors on, on what's happening here. Some would say, this is Manoah having faith. Lord, we really want you to come and teach us. We want to do what's right in your eyes. Come and help us. Others would say, Manoah should have just listened to his wife because she just told him what was going to happen anyways. And he's kind of uncertain and, and maybe uh, a little bit insecure. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't make a decision on that one this week. I think it's good that he's praying. Uh, God listened to the voice of Manoah, answered his prayer. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. I love it. The angel of God doesn't come to the man who just prayed. He goes back to the woman. That's wonderful. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? This woman, it's his wife. Uh, and he said, I am. And Manoah said, Okay, thank you. Great. This is, I've been waiting. I needed to ask you a question. Now, when your words come true, I like there's faith there. When your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? I would just like to point out how stereotypical man that is. Like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> I love it. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of everything that I said to the woman, let her be careful. Like, I already told your wife, bro. Like, you should have just listened to her. Everything I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Like the angel's like, I, I, I'm telling you this twice. I already told her. Are you guys getting it yet? Like we've heard the same thing several times. Okay, Manoah gets it. Says to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you. Um, that doesn't mean like law enforcement. That means like just stay for a while. Let us prepare a young goat for you. That's a big sacrifice. That's a very generous offer. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. A name is very significant to the people in the biblical world. What is your name? We want to know what it is. And the angel of the Lord said, I love it. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful. Um, the, the new Aaron Gray revised version is, you can't handle my name. <laughs> so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. Now here's the dramatic moment, verse 20. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground to which we all said, yeah, me too. I don't know about you. I've never been uh, in my backyard with some friends over for a barbecue and I light the coal and I pour a little lighter fluid and when the flame goes up, my guest just disappears up into the sky on the barbecue grill. That's never happened to me. If it did, I would tell somebody about it on Facebook probably, right? That's, that's a dramatic moment. It actually kind of calls to mind earlier in chapter, I believe it's six, when Gideon had a similar conversation with the angel of the Lord. When he offers a sacrifice, boom, disappears. Dramatic moment, dramatic reveal. 
They fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now listen to this. Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Many, if not most times, In the Old Testament, when you see this character, the angel of the Lord, it is an appearance, a manifestation in human form of God himself. They just had an encounter, not with any old angel, but with God himself. We will die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. I would just like to submit to you that Manoah's wife is a smart woman. She says, hey, I know I, it's dramatic. I get it. But calm down. God's not going to kill us. Why would he have come and made all these promises to us and told us about the child we're going to have and this Nazarite vow? She's like, calm, calm down, buddy. It's going to be okay. She's a smart woman. I like that. But the the real question is, again, reading through the story, why do they respond this way? Why do they respond like this? And I would simply give you the, the simplest truth and simplest but profound answer I have is God is holy. God is holy, amen? Friends, the the Bible lists all sorts of attributes of God. God is what what are some of those attributes? God is love. God is what? Miraculous. God is was he miraculous or wrathful? Truthful? Eternal, patient, all of these are true, absolutely true. Wise, forgiving, gracious, all of them are true. The number one most commonly listed attribute of God throughout the scripture is that God is holy. So if we are called to be set apart and holy, it is because our God in the ultimate sense is set apart and holy. He is like no other. Friends, the Bible says that one of the ways that we can think about our relationship with God is that of friend. John 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. That's beautiful, yes? One of the ways we can think of our relationship with God is like a child to a father. It says we've been adopted into the family of God. He is our eternal heavenly father. He's, he's our loving father. That's good, right? Uh, the, the Bible says that one of the ways we can think about our relationship with God is like that of a romance between a husband and a wife. That's from Ephesians 5. There's that close relational uh, bond between us and God. But against all of that, not against all of that, I should say, but, but, but woven in with all of that should be for us as Christians, the idea that God is holy. The Bible talks about God like being unapproachable light. There's no darkness in him that if we're to approach God, we can't even stand because he is so pure, so awesome in the true sense of the word. I, this is kind of a weird analogy, but, but I want, I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. Um, (laughs) So weird analogy. So in my neighborhood to go anywhere out of my neighborhood, I have to drive through at least two school zones. I think there's at least four, maybe five school zones surrounding my house. So any direction that I go, I have to drive through a school zone. And you know the school zone, it's 30 miles an hour, but when the lights are flashing, you're only allowed to go 20. You guys know that, right? And most of the time people go what? 24, 25, 27. But there is one school zone near my house that has the all-seeing big brother camera that will videotape you and mail a ticket to your house should you go even over the speed limit hardly at all. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know, right? All the libertarians in the room are like, I know where they are. I've got a map of them, right? 
this, this, this school zone, I swear to you, because I, I drive through it most every day. I drop my kids off at school. I drive through it to get to work uh, in our offices. And where other people go, you know, 24, 25, 26, in that school zone where there's a camera and accountability, everyone is going 19.2 miles an hour. They all have their hands on 10 and 2. The radio is off. Their eyes are checking the mirror. Like they're, you've never seen such good drivers. Why? Because of a little bit of accountability, because of a little bit of fear, Genuinely, like fear, like I, I could get actually caught speeding. Other school zones, maybe there's not a cop, maybe they'll be gracious or whatever. That camera doesn't love you. The camera's not having a good day or a bad day. That camera is just judging you. And if you're going too fast, it's going to send you a ticket. Now, I know it's a weird analogy, but think about this. God knows and sees all in our lives, much more so than the camera. Do we have, in the same sort of a way, do we have some sort of a reverence and an awe and a respect for the fact that God is holy? Do we allow the, the, the other aspects of our relationship with God to soften the fact that he is a holy God? Do we worship God as holy? Do we honor him as holy? Or do we go to the mall and buy a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt and think that that means that anything we do is probably okay because Jesus and I were just buds and he gets it. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Friends, I, I'm, I am not negating anything. I'm not pitting scripture against scripture. It's all scripture. It's all true. But I want you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, one who is called friend by Jesus, to still have that sense of he is a holy God. And I ought to have reverence and awe and respect for him. Amen? God is holy. That's why they fall to the ground. They know their sin and they know God's perfection. Isaiah, when he sees God, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm, he's like, literally, I am unraveled before a holy God. Do we have that sense? First Peter 3, talking about fearing people who might mock you or, or persecute you. He says, I have no fear of them. Don't be troubled by them. Don't let them bother you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's holy. Verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. That's the region where he grew up. The Lord is stirring in him and preparing him for this divine calling. And friends, uh, I don't mean to give away the ending or kind of spoil the next few weeks of the story, but that's the glowing bright spot in the story of Samson right there. That's it. It's going to go downhill rather quickly from this point forward. So what can we learn from this? I want to briefly circle back around to this idea that we opened up with, with the idea of devotion. We saw that Samson was called to this high level of devotion. He's going to be a Nazarite. I mean, think about, think about expectations, right? When your birth is announced by not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord, high expectations. When, you, when you're going to be a Nazarite, devoted to the Lord, above and beyond, uh, holy and righteous living, high expectations. Do we, should we, at this point in the story, should we expect great things from the life of Samson? Yes, we should. And we're going to unfortunately see that it's every time that you, you think he should go right, he goes left. Every time he should take the high road, he just sinks a little bit lower. So what do we do with this? This idea of devotion. Samson is called to be completely devoted to God and he is called to engage with God's world in a way that God has for him. There's, there's a mission. What will his life be? What will his mission be? Remember his dad used that word? What will his mission be? 
And yet, what will his calling be? You almost kind of see in there, like, there's this, like, this tension. There's this tension between this idea of living a holy life, of, of kind of a separation sort of a thing, but then there's also this call to engage and to, to be uh, you know, present in the world. There's, this, is, this is the last point I want to make for today. Is this, there's this tension between separation and engagement. Some of you who, are, who have been Christians for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you look, you look through the, the, the Bible, you know, going into the New Testament, and you see verses like from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 where he talks about don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Like, don't partner up with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? He says, uh, he says things like, um, in that same passage, he says, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. It's like this really strong cult of separation, is it not? But then you also read passages like Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul engages with the culture. He goes to this place called the Areopagus. It's in Athens. It's in Greece. It's, it's called Mars Hill. It's where they worship the god Mars on this, on this mountain. And he engages with them, and he starts quoting from their own poets and philosophers. You're like, well, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you were supposed to separate yourself and not go near them. And then here you are going near them and, and even quoting their own people. Which one is it? You read the Apostle John. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, John, 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then you flip over like, well, wait a minute. I thought I remember John 3.16 saying, For God so what? Loved the world. Like, which one is it, John? I, I'm, I'm confused. I thought I was not supposed to love the world, but God loves the world. And there's this tension here. Jesus himself in John 15 says, if the world hates you, don't worry about it. They hated me first. I chose you out of the world. He says, I'm, he, said, he literally says, I chose you out of the world. But then you read in Luke chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you into the world like lambs among wolves. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> sending you in. I'm sending you to engage. The, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Which one is it, Jesus? Separation from the world or or engagement with the world? And I think the most biblical answer to that question is, yes. I would, I, I, it's, a, it's a biblical tension, is it not? Samson is not going to do particularly well. How, how do we do? I think it's hard for us oftentimes, you hear me say this type of language a lot, the ditches or the tensions. It's hard for us to live in places of tension. We like easy, simple answers that just wrap everything up, explain everything. It's hard for us to sometimes wrestle with these biblical tensions. So let me, let, me just, let me just ask, we'll do a little bit of a poll here, survey. How many of you would say that in your natural personality, your natural gifting, your natural wiring, you would tend more towards kind of the separation side of things. You, you really resonate with those verses about holiness and holy living. Um, maybe, in, you know, if you took like a personality profile, like the disc one, you'd be a high C. You like things to be correct and right. And, and, and you, would, you would tend to want to kind of maybe pull away a little bit more. So quick show of hands. How many of you would say, yeah, that's probably a little bit more me? All right. So, and you were the ones, you raised your hands really quickly too because you wanted to be right. Okay, that's good. Okay, 
Others of you might say, okay, I'm, I'm, the, I'm more on the engagement side, and I, I like to say things like, hey, it's not about rules or religion, it's about relationship, and I want to go tell people about Jesus, and don't worry about all the legalistic sort of stuff, and, and I just want to go engage with the world. How many of you would say that's probably a little bit more you? Raise your hands. Okay. All right, we got pictures too, so we can identify you later. Um, here's the thing. Whichever one of those sides of the tension you fall more towards, I need you praying, as as one of your pastors, I'm praying that you would acknowledge that we need each other. One body, many parts. We need people with that natural proclivity towards one side or the other of a very good, healthy, biblical tension. We need each other to stretch one another, and we need each other to safeguard each other. We need to safeguard. So so for those of you who are self-proclaimed more kind of on the over-separation thing, here's what you need to watch out for. You will be tempted to start adding extra rules above and beyond what the word of God says. You'll be tempted to say, well, if God says that drunkenness is a sin, therefore going to any store that sells alcohol is a sin. Okay, you just took it too far. And there might even be, there, there often is a really noble heart. I actually just had this conversation with someone recently, a really noble heart, a really noble desire, whatever the thing might be, to say, hey, I don't even want to go there with that sin. I don't, want to, I don't want to even flirt with it. And so they start adding extra rules and start adding extra rules. For yourself, if that's what you need to do, praise God, you do that. But the moment it starts to become a legalistic thing that you put burdens on other people, you've now gone into a place out of balance for biblical Christianity. Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, he ripped on the Pharisees for this very thing. The Pharisees were criticizing Jesus' disciples because they didn't go through the appropriate hand-washing ceremony before they eat. And Jesus said, you know, in, in some pretty blunt terms, Isaiah the prophet was speaking about you and he said that you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He says, you abandon the commandments of God for the traditions of man. So if you're on that side of the equation, if that's more your personality type, if that's more your upbringing or whatever, you need to ask yourself questions like, hey, where might I be adding extra rules to God's word that that are not biblical? Where might I, here's here's an important one, ask yourself this question. Where am I living out of fear instead of trusting in God? Ask yourself about that motivation. For those of you who are on the other side of the coin, more on the uh, engagement side of things, What's your, what's your possible ditch that you could go into? Compromise. Yep, exactly. People who are engagement people might use grace as an excuse to sin. Oh, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be relevant. Or I'm just trying to be, you know, socially acceptable. Or I'm just trying to, you know, do what God's asked me to do. I don't want to put a barrier in front of them. I don't want them to think I'm weird. I'm not some religious, legalistic, fuddy-duddy. But yeah, but are you sinning? And again, I'm not talking about the extra man-made rules. I'm talking about stuff that is clear, defined, right and wrong in the word of God. And you're, you're using your freedom, you're using God's grace as an excuse to give place to sin. So you need to start asking questions of yourself like, am I really living a life that is set apart? Am I living a holy, distinct, and set-apart life? Am I using God's grace and my freedom as an excuse to sin? Am I cheapening the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for me? You need to ask yourself those questions. Now, my sincere hope right now in this moment is that I have made everybody uncomfortable. That's, That's my sincere desire. 
Some of you are like, I do both. Like, well, we'll pray for you. Uh, but, but we all need to wrestle with this tension. How do we engage with the world? How do we remain distinct from the world? You know, the, the, the story of Samson, I'll, I'll close with this. I mean, you, you know where I'm going, right? <laughs> if you've been to Sound City any length of time at all before, you know, you know that the, the, I'm, I, I gotta bring it back to Jesus. I gotta bring it back to Jesus. This, stamp, this Samson birth narrative, it points us to Jesus because, because here's the deal. There is only one person who lived up to that high divine calling, who actually lived out that tension between separation and engagement. That's Jesus Christ himself. The story of Samson foreshadows Jesus. Two very clear ways. First of all is the birth announcement. The birth announcement of Samson is meant to be a loud, flashing neon sign to point us forward to Jesus. If you were an early Christian, an early believer, and you're reading the book of Luke, and you read this birth announcement, you're going to think of either Sarah with, with, with um, Abraham, and Isaac and, or Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac, or you're going to think of Samson. And I would say you might even be willing, more tempted or more prone to think about Samson because he was the one who was promised to deliver Israel. He was going to deliver Israel, but Jesus was born with a divine calling on his life too. What was, what was Jesus' divine calling? It says that Jesus will be born to deliver the people from their sins. So Samson is going to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but Jesus is born with this divine calling to save not just from one enemy, but from the ultimate enemy, sin and death itself. And Jesus lived a separated life. He was holy. It says in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted and tried in every single way, yet was without sin. That's good news, right, church? And yet on the other side, he engaged. He broke all sorts of man-made rules and traditions. He spoke to the woman at the well. He, he had people who were uh, not societally acceptable as part of his inner circle. He got flack because people said, why are you talking to the sinners? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He went right to the heart of where the need was and yet was perfectly pure. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could do that. Because of that, it means that his death on the cross means something. He's the perfect sacrifice. You and I have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. But because of his perfection, we can confidently say, my debt is paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because he engaged with the world, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so friends, we've got a great mission to share with people the good news of Jesus because he has been lifted up. He did die on the cross for our sins. And what's more, he rose from the dead on the third day, which should give us all the confidence in the world that we can follow Jesus. Amen? This is such an important thing for us to see in the life of Samson. You know, as we, as we keep talking about Samson, you know, we're going to talk about his great acts of strength and his great might and his, his, his muscles, right? <laughs> That's the Samson thing, right? He's just powerful and strong, but he is incredibly spiritually weak. He does not live a devoted life to God. And so let me close with this thought. This is my last thought for you today. I want you to live a life of devotion to God. I really do. My heart's desire for you as a pastor, I want you to walk more closely with Jesus today than you did yesterday and tomorrow than you do today. But I am convinced because of scripture, because of evidence, because of people's testimony in my lives, I am convinced more than ever before that the only way you are gonna live a more devoted life to God 
is not by focusing on your devotion to God, but being reminded of God's devotion to us in Christ Jesus. On our own, we're all Samsons. We don't live up to the calling that, that we should. We don't, we don't stay faithful to God. We don't stay devoted to God. But thank God that Jesus was devoted to us to be obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross, right? And 2 Timothy tells us that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Friend, do you want to live a more devoted life to Jesus? Do you? Do you want to live a more devoted life to Jesus? then get your eyes off of yourself and your devotion and give thanks to God for his devotion to you and let that fuel you and drive you forward as you seek to honor God with your life. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would help us be fully devoted followers of Jesus. I ask and I pray that where there is compromise in our lives, where we've given place or given room to sin, God, I pray you would inspire in us a a fighting sort of an attitude, a a heart that says, God, I want to put to death the sins of the flesh. God, for others of us, where there has been fear that gives place to legalism or extra man-made rules, God, would you break down our pride in those areas? And would you help us to follow you with sincere devotion, not merely external good-looking works, but God, true, heartfelt, worshipful response to you and your love. God, for all of us, I pray that you would remind us of your love, you'd remind us of the gospel, and that your devotion to us would fuel our devotion to you. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. I want to call us to a time of response now. And this is an opportunity for us to practice devotion to God through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest, please know there's no pressure or some sort of arm twisting thing to give. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I want to make an invitation for you. It can be hard to give with our money. It can be hard to practice devotion to God in that area. And so I want to invite you to remember that God has given us his very best. We're going to invite our younger students uh, class to join us for this time of response and worship. I'll invite our musicians to come as well as they prepare to lead us in a time of singing. While they're coming, let me read some discussion questions to help us this week in our homes and our community groups. What areas of your life demonstrate devotion? Work, school, interests, other? And here's the key question. How do these areas of devotion strengthen your devotion to Jesus or weaken it and why? Number two, where do you need to put sin to death in greater measure and how might you be lulled into a false sense of peace with sin? Number three, what does it look like to live as set apart and holy in the middle of a broken world? Number four, which ditch do you naturally gravitate toward, the over-engagement side or the over-separation side? And, and actually, even in the group, as you're talking about it, I would just encourage you to affirm one another and find ways to say like how, how you need each other. Number five, how does the gospel help us live more devoted lives? How does focusing on God's devotion to us strengthen and empower us to live set apart lives? And things to pray about. Friends, we, we want to be a prayerful, praying church. Please pray that God would empower us to live more, li- more fully devoted lives. And then he, pray that God would give us opportunities to share about his devoted love. One of the things that... Um, just, I don't know, bothers me more and more with each passing year is whenever I talk to non-Christians about being Christians, they usually have this idea that it's about them having to like make the decision to just go for it and be good enough. Friends, let's lead with the devoted love of God before we ever get to the part where we have to start doing works. Remember that, okay? Lead with God's devoted love to us.
They're going to hand out the elements for communion. If you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us at the table. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. And as we prepare our hearts to receive this gift from God, may we remember today that the bread and the cup are symbols of God's ultimate devotion to us. God was so devoted to us. He sent his son Jesus to have his body broken and his blood spilled for our salvation. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's sacrificial, devoted, loving, giving death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So here's the thing. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, our musicians are going to play instrumentally for a moment here. I invite you to sit. If you want to just silently reflect before the Lord, if you want to pray, ask God to examine your heart. If you're here with your spouse or with a friend or a neighbor or a community group member, and you want to even just pray together, you're more than welcome to do that. And then after we've had a a moment of prayer and reflection, I'll invite you to stand uh, and sing with us as the band leads us in a time of responding to this devoted love of God. Let me pray one more time and we'll sing. God, thank you. Thank you that your commitment to us is far and away greater than our commitment to you. In so many ways, we're like Samson. In so many ways, we're like the Israelites. And God, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in you. That you loved us, that you called us, that you saved us, that you chose us. When we were at our worst, you drew us to yourself. We praise you for that. We ask that this time of singing and response now would be sweet to you, that it would come from a sincere heart of devotion and response to you. In Jesus' name, amen.